This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk,、yeah. get some vitamin D, breathe some fresh air, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Laura Spath, and I am joined by my friend and co host, Judy Cho. <sighs> Judy, hello. Yes. Happy day.、Um, <laughs> I saw your post about,、um, I'm trying to think of how to word it. I was looking at your stories, and I'll let you explain it, but like about how we、um, sometimes have to lose people in our lives in order to grow. And it just, I mean, I think we've all been through this, and I wanted you to share kind of what's going on as much as you're comfortable、um, about just kind of growing apart from people at times. And it's really hard emotionally to let go of people that are maybe not helpful and keeping you healthy. Yeah.、Um, I think I'm naturally very sentimental. I am pretty loyal as a friend, and I might have the hot and cold moments where sometimes I get really passionate about certain things and principles. I've always felt that as long as there's nothing significant that has happened, maybe you'll drift from friends, but you'll always have that fond memory and you can always rely on that and be close again at a certain point. But as I've grown the Nutrition with Judy brand, and a lot of my work is public, and some of the content I share is controversial, for example, the children's vaccine, some stuff around the mask, the pandemic, a lot of that, even religion. And, or even sharing an all meat diet, right? I think that's the most normal of everything I brought up. But I think it's okay to understand, just frankly speaking, understanding from even a biblical perspective that not everyone will be in your life forever. And that is okay. And that was very hard for me to really understand and accept. And I know for a lot of people that are listening to our content, even in our community, When they decided to take a stand against a lot of the things that happened in the pandemic, even within their close family, they felt excluded or 
a recent client told me that their family had a get together or a reunion and they were not invited. And when you hear these things, it hurts, right? It's even though we are standing on the ground that we believe is right um, with all the data we have, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt because as much as we don't agree with our loved ones, they're still our loved ones. And it hurts sometimes. And as much as I advocate for things on in public and as Nutrition with Judy, when my friends cut me off or decide to stop meeting with me because I share about ivermectin instead of whatever else they're taking, right. it hurts, right? As much as I advocate and I do the research, the the outward action from these people is they're no longer in touch with us. My son's best friend of three years, which is a long time for his little seven-year-old age, but the mom all of a sudden cut us off. And I know my son wants to hang out with his old best friend, but we're not welcome. And I don't know how to rectify that to my son. And there's just so many of these moments. And most times it's okay for me, but it still hurts. And I just want, I just wanted to bring this up because if people have felt ostracized during this whole pandemic, it really sucks. And I'm just telling you that I can relate and I understand and it hurts me to the core. But we have to also understand if people are willing to die on an ideology and cut us off and say that you're no longer worth it in my life, then maybe that person was just supposed to be in your life until that point. And it's okay. And even if they're family, it's just find a balance that you are okay with. But if some people just want to really separate from you, maybe it was meant to be that way. And you can find more like-minded people. I mean, thank God for my friendship with Laura during this whole pandemic. It would have been so much more lonelier, so much more difficult dealing with the repeaters or any other diet that's come along the way. And so I'm very grateful for my friendship with Laura. And if I just held on to my old friendships, I may have never blossomed the friendship I had with Laura. So really my whole thing is, I know a lot of people have been hurt through this pandemic with different ideologies, and sometimes it's okay to just turn the chapter. It even is strange to me when you even say the pandemic, because it feels like so many of us have been living normal lives for a very long time. Right. I mean, it was a very short period of time where our family had anything different that way that we were living. And I think a lot of us went back to living normal lives very quickly and- Um, other people, even, even other people, it's still been like a really decent amount of time. Even if you stayed home for a year or so, it still has been quite a long time. The problem is the repercussions of the way that we behaved or people's actions and the fear. And I think the, the way that we acted out of fear or some people acted out of fear, there is lasting repercussions of that. And like you said, I think more than anything, it helped me to realize like who I wanted in my life. That's to me what I learned through the last couple of years is the community that I want to have around me. And I am so much more careful about people that I allow into my life. And it honestly, sometimes it had nothing to do with the COVID. And there are people that I align with on COVID, but I also still don't invest my time in them. The The busier that I get, the more that I have you know, other priorities in my life and important things. I want to invest my time in things that are going to be helpful for me and encouraging for me and people that lift me up and support me and challenge me to be better. Um, Those are the types of people I wanted in my life. I'm tired of being around the people who are bringing you down and um, 
jealous and just wanting things from you, right? They want to be friends with you because they want something from you. Um, and, and those are the types of things that I find myself walking away from. But like you said, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And when you have a fr- friendship that's been a lifelong relationship of some kind or family that you can't see, those are things that are really hard. There's a huge grieving process that happens because of that. I think as we get older, things are busier, right? You have a family, you have children and lots of other things that go on in your life. And so time becomes your most precious limited resource. And I just think of it as I know I'm in this world for a very short blip of time. Like, what can I do in my time to make this a better place for my children, for our community, with God's talents that he's provided us and lots of other things. And so when I think of people that are in your life, and maybe it's because of just history, but if they're not conducive, there's no, I'm not saying it just cut off everyone, but it's just this fine balance. And I think of, um, I heard a saying the other day that said, the only thing that can take over fear and anger is love. And so if people are cutting me out because of the fear that maybe me sharing that vaccines are not necessary for the children, especially with COVID, that maybe their fear is that I'm going to kill their children. But the only way to cover that is with love. And I would rather not live my life in fear and in anger. And I'd rather, like you said, surround myself with people that are more going forward with love and with community and just people that will inspire. I'm okay now, I guess, just saying goodbye to certain relationships. And while it's not easy, I think it's the right thing to do, but it definitely hurts. Yeah. And we've, we've had a lot of conversations before about how we evolve. And I always talked, I've talked on this podcast before. Remember like at the very beginning of one of our episodes, we had the um, psychologist on and I just said like, (laughs) there's something wrong with me because I tend to cycle through friendships like every couple of years. And I think actually you and I have outlasted most of that. And I think it's just because we're like more like sisters, but it is, it's interesting how we grow and we evolve and it, it's not always, uh, it always doesn't have to be this negative thing. There isn't often like a blow up or a reason why you're no longer friends with somebody. It's just because you grow apart and you, you both change and you evolve. And more than anything, you realize the community that you want to have. And I protect that viciously at this point. I also think that, I don't know, the older I get, the less I care about specific things. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just being in this social media world. Like, I just don't care about the labels. I don't care about what, like, I'm going to, I don't care about eating something or not eating something because of the rules around it or what title that that would give me. If it excludes me from being a carnivore or what, like, I think that's why you and I kind of have gone on a little bit of a rant the last three episodes (laughs) about just a lot of the trends and trying to bring some context to that. I think it's just because you and I are just so passionate about getting the truth out, having people find healing, having people live a life that they want to live and be healthy and happy. And when it comes to so much like like we've said before, like just so much nonsense. It's just, I I have no time for that. I have no energy to invest in like worrying about what my label is going to be. If I eat some pickles, I'm just, I want to live my life and I'm happy to do that. And if, if people don't want to be around that, then that's also fine too. Yeah. What you said is dead on. I think the pandemic has also taught me it's okay if my community is smaller, as long as each community member in that are the right people that are supposed to be around me. And I'm thankful for the small community I do have around me because that's what matters more than having many and they're not being the right 
people for my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we have continued to curate our community over time. Like obviously not only our friends, but it's why I know both of us just spend a lot of time. It's, I mean, little things like the KetoCon stuff or like I went to Boca and we just, we try to do things that are spending time with community and learning and challenging ourselves and being aware of kind of what we're investing in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for just, you know, chatting about this. I, it was just weighing on my heart and I told Laura, let's just talk a little bit about this, but let's talk about the real topic that we were going to actually talk about today, which is so much lighter. Let's talk about some of the learning lessons from Boca. I'm very curious myself. Yeah. So last year you and I went together and we kind of broke down on our episodes, like all the different talks. So this year I get to fill you in on everything, but (laughs) the first day, full day was all on food addiction, which was very different. Um, especially for that type of conference, but it wasn't as much about like food addiction and the emotional thing. It was from a clinical standpoint. And like that conference is speaking a lot to clinicians and doctors So it was talking about tools and resources and how do you coach somebody with food addiction and how do you identify this? How do you address it from a clinical perspective? And that was so interesting to me. Um, So binge eating disorder is a clinical diagnosis. Right. And obviously alcoholism is 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 a clinical diagnosis, but something like food addiction or overeating, without it being classified as binge eating disorder, there is no clinical diagnosis for food addiction or carb addiction or sugar addiction, whatever you want to call it. And it is interesting. So there's a lot of doctors who are having to find creative ways to work with people, to get treatments covered, to get actual diagnosis, to have people understand what's truly going on with them because there is no real diagnosis for it. Yeah. Even the binge eating disorder is pretty new. Um, I know when I was in treatment facility, I think it was just coming out and it's really hard to get these things covered by insurance. I know that my outpatient intensive care was almost $2,000 a day. And we had to fight so hard for me to get in there and stay in there for several weeks, just because it's so expensive. And unless your labs show you're dying, or there's just really, really severe things, they don't even the insurance doesn't even want to keep you in there for long term, even if the patient themselves are saying, this is helping me. I feel better. I feel like I'm getting better. And the psychiatrist in there, the doctors say that you need to stay in there unless your labs show that you're literally, you know, malnourished and dying. Right. And maybe all your electrolytes are imbalanced. They will kick you out of care. It's pretty crazy. And then they probably just keep you long enough to regulate you and balance you out yep. and then send no, you back exactly home again. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. They talked a lot about how like food addiction is so hard because there's no, you still have to eat. Like that's the thing that makes it really hard. And I think that's the, this flip side to that is that's why so many of us, so many of us find that carnivore is so healing because we are able to eliminate carbs and sugar and processed food. And so, you know, Dr. Joan Ifland, I'm just going to kind of rattle off some names, but like Dr. Joan Ifland was there and she talks about all of this being a processed food addiction. Um, Dr. Rob Sivest talks about it being a carb addiction. Um, Dr. Tro talks a lot about being a food addiction. And then there was other people there that talked about it being a sugar addiction. So it's like all of these these things though, for the most part, you are able to abstain from, um, you're just not always, um, obviously not food in general, but Dr. Sivest had an interesting quote, uh, while we were there, he was, they had mentioned, 
the endorph the endorphins and the dopamine that comes from eating of some kind. Um, during one of the events, every all the food that they served was low carb, but they had a keto cake at the end of it. And the next day, he kind of made some comments to everybody like, you know, if you're looking for a treat or a snack, it's not because you're hungry. It's trying. It's you're trying to get high. So those of you that had that cake yesterday <laughs> after lunch, he's like, I don't care if it says keto after it. You're you're not eating keto cake. You're getting high. And that was really resonating with me um, because that's what happened with me with sugar and food. And when I think about eating when I'm not hungry, even if it's a snack of some kind, it's not because there's hunger there that I need to snack on. It's that I'm looking for the high. I'm looking for an emotional response um, in order to feel better in the moment. And that comes from having some type of food or stimulant. Yeah. And what's so interesting about that dopamine kick is when you're thinking about it um, and that, oh, I'm going to go have that cake and I'm waiting in line. And that whole process of when you've already decided you'll have that cake, that's what the height of the dopamine kick that let's say you're going to the gas station or you're going to the store and you're like, yes, I am going to have a cheat day and I'm going to eat all these foods. That moment of excitement is the highest point of your dopamine. <laughs> and so I think it was when I interviewed with Dr. Gary Fecky, he says that sometimes, and this is so, I would consider this somewhat disordered, but he said, sometimes when he craves sugar, he will go through that whole um, exercise and then not eat it or even just smell it and then mm-hmm. not eat it, which I think is kind of torturous in my opinion. But I well, I, I posted some videos a few weeks ago on Instagram about how when I first started doing this way, I had been like a year with no cheats, but I was so obsessed with like new junk food that came out and especially like stuff like cereals. And so whenever like new cereals came about, I would go buy them and I would ask my coworkers to eat it. And then I would be like, what does it taste like? What is it? And I would like smell it or they'd be eating ice cream and I would go smell it. And it's just so bizarre. So I had those moments as well, where, but it was this, I was getting high off of smelling their junk food and it still gave me that release. I also think that's why I have never been able to say, like commit to saying the words, I will never have another cheat day. I always just say like, Hey, later next time tomorrow. And in a lot of ways, maybe it's still giving me this like rush of like, someday I'm going to eat that food. And then I don't actually do it, but it allows me to almost slightly experience that moment of thinking about what if I did and then I can distract myself and move on. And and it's obviously those things get easier over time. But it is interesting that you say that. It kind of makes me put those things together that I personally experience. I, th- I do think that when you're standing there and asking and you did the purchasing of it, I bet you you had a mild dopamine kick. For sure. And I think it also makes sense when you say, okay, I'll just have the junk food later rather than I'm just never going to have it. Because when you put an absolute on something like it's forever forbidden, the desire is there more. And then finally, when you actually do cave, your dopamine may actually even have a higher high. I've always said just from my personal experience that I do think a food addiction is way harder than everything else, because everything else you can abstain from. And that's why just like you said, carnivore just seems a lot more it just made a lot more sense for me because I now didn't have to worry about the amount of carbs I ate. And it was just a black or white thing where I just abstained from all carbs and it just made life a little bit easier. And I think unless you're truly addicted to food, you do not understand that concept. So for other people, they'll always tell me you just traded a carnivore for another eating disorder, but really it's now I have all this freedom and yes, I limit carbs, but it's a freedom that I never had when I was addicted to food. I've said that before where I say there's freedom and restriction. Yeah, absolutely. I felt that for a very long time and feeling like it's so much easier to say no to something 
than to try to like at all and not have one bite than to try to limit myself from the minute I have one bite, then it's a complete spiral. And to yeah. kind of pivot off of what you said a second ago, one of the quotes that was shared when, you know, a lot of people were asking these doctors and clinicians that were there, like, Hey, how do I get a family member to heal from this? Or what happens is, is that somebody will go to a doctor and she'll say, my husband needs to lose weight and he has a food addiction. Or how do I get my husband to be healthier? And it's not actually the person who wants to get healthy that's asking the questions. It's a loved one for theirs. And obviously all of them were like, there's nothing you can do at this point. Like they have to want it for themselves. And one of them, um, I think it was Dr. David Unwin said, for some people, the very idea that they have to give up this food that they're addicted to. The minute you mention to them like, hey, we're going to give up this food that you're addicted to, they go completely off the rails and they spiral out of control. And I think that's off. That's the behavior that we see when people are like, I'm going to start a diet on Monday. And instantly this fear of like, and I've done this hundreds of times in my life of I'm going to start a diet on Monday or I'm going to start the first of the month. And this absolute binge that happens leading up to that of eating all these things. I got to get it out of my system one more time. And then you completely spiral. And then the actual diet, whatever you're doing, doesn't actually stick and work because you've put yourself in such a deep hole leading up to it that you're not able, actually, it's just so much harder to climb out of it because you've like gone on this complete spiral. And a lot of people just never actually recover. They, they get this anxiety about the fact that they might have to give something up and then they go completely off the rails. Yeah, Dr. Tro, I recently interviewed him and he brought up, because we were talking about food addiction and how to support people. And he said that there's an, there's a alcoholic test and it's super simple. I forgot what the test oh, is. Oh, I have it called, in front of me actually. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I, no, I get, I print, he, we, they gave us printouts and stuff. So it's the, the cage test. There's several, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. but it's the cage. Do you want to read it to you? So, oh, yeah, yeah. You have the official one. So go for it. I'll read it and then you can explain it. So it's the cage test and it's four questions that you ask and you, you answer yes or no to these questions. And the, obviously it talks about drinking, but if you replace it with like eating right. sugar or eating carbs, it's very applicable. So number one is, have you ever felt like you should cut down on your drinking, right? Have you ever felt like you should cut down on eating carbs? Or eating any type yes. of food, yes. Yeah. Have, you, have people annoyed you by criticizing your eating? Have you ever felt bad or guilty about your eating? And have you ever had food first thing in the morning to steady your nerves or to get rid of a hangover? And I, like that one may not seem like it relates as much. So it's, it's saying, have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to get rid of a hangover? I have a hundred percent woken up before with a sugar yes. withdrawal headache and instantly ran to the kitchen. And why do you think most people wake up in the morning and they have to eat first thing in the morning because they have a massive headache and it's sugar withdrawal. And I needed a bowl of cereal and even just like a breakfast sandwich. This I would instantly wake up in the morning and go to Chick-fil-A and get my, all the carbs and sugar because my body was going through sugar withdrawals first thing in the morning. So that was, that was very applicable. So then I'll let you explain it more, but basically if you answered one or what is it? If you answered more than two, then, um, you are considered clinically significant that you could have an uh, an alcohol abuse issue. And if you answer four out of four, then there's a 90% likelihood that you have an alcohol dependency or what we would consider a carb or sugar dependency. And they were saying that this isn't obviously clinically allowed, but they use it to help diagnose people with food addiction. Yeah, I think when people get so defensive about a certain food or a macro or carbohydrate or something, 
I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, I had a client that had to get their wisdom teeth pulled and it's because they like dried fruits. And I said, well, do you still plan on eating dried fruits? And they said, most likely. So it's just, you know, but they were so scared of getting their wisdom teeth pulled out. So it's just that dichotomy of you understand because even their dentist was saying, don't eat dried fruit for a while, but that's their kind of cheat food throughout the day. And it just makes you wonder, well, you know, the pain of having to get your wisdom teeth pulled, dried fruit being removed from your diet is not an option. Yeah. I definitely felt a little called out too when they said that what is, think about what's the one food that you can't live without. We ought, people say, I can't, I could never do what you do. I couldn't live without bread. I couldn't live without this. Right. But they were like, the food that you say you can't live without is the ones that you should uh, need to give up right away. Yeah. And I, I got, I was like, well, probably it's a good reason why I'm focusing on getting rid of Diet Coke because how many times have I said, I can't go without it, but it's that one I felt a little called out on, but I mean, obviously I felt some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was going to say dissonance, but it's not that word, but no, just, uh, some starts with an R <laughs> anyway, I, I just with your soda thing. I wonder if it's partly the fizz because I know for me when I was getting off of diet soda, yes, some of it was a sweet, but then when I started shifting to more fizzy drinks and then no caffeine, um, it helped a lot. And then when I just shifted finally to just sparkling water, which has no sweet, it was a shift. But I noticed that part of the the reason I liked that drink so much was the fizz itself. So I wonder if you did like a natural progression, moving from diet soda to diet soda without caffeine, and then diet soda with a little less sweet, like there's a few products out now that have only one or two grams of some type of sugar, and it's still lightly sweet, and then maybe fully progressing. I don't know. But I wonder if it's partly the fizz. Yeah, I definitely I mean, I, it's almost to like a cleanse for me after my meal where like, mm -hmm. I don't eat dessert. And so it's like this, you know, it's like after you eat like this rich fatty meal, it was almost like a cleanse for me of being able to like, have something sweet, I guess is, you know, the Diet Coke or just have something uh, as a way to like finish that meal. But I, I just can't drink regular sparkling waters. They just taste like the soda machine right now. Like they're just <laughs> too plain. But you know what I've been doing lately? So a couple different things. I've been taking some like tea, like um, there's like a Tazo hibiscus okay. tea that has no sugar in it. And I've been mixing that with some sparkling water and that helps give it more flavor. And then also everybody suggested to me online because I use Element. Um, and I take like a third of a packet of Element and mix that with the sparkling water. So it adds flavor. It has a little stevia in it. And it actually ends up tasting like a decent replacement instead of being just like this weird odd tasting sparkling soda. Yeah, I'll have to try that. I've never tried I've never tried putting electrolytes into sparkling water because I just figured the salt would make it not palatable, but I'll have to try that. Well, That's it's like if you just like don't use the whole packet. Okay. That's the same thing. When people put those packets in their coffee, if they put a whole packet in there, it's going to be really salty. You just got to put like a third mm -hmm. or a half of a pack. Well, Based on that test, it sounds like almost everyone would fit into it. That's what I would think that most of the listeners listening is that, well, I think everyone would get upset about some kind of food that they really like. So does that mean that everyone is food addicted? And I wonder if that question was brought up in the conversation at all. I I I didn't hear that one. I know they talked about um, a lot of people are, right? They even said it doesn't necessarily have to be because of weight. You know, Dr. Tro gave an example of a patient who came in and was very fit and um, 
basically told Dr. Cho, he's like, I have a problem with food. I have addiction. And they had a hard time believing him essentially. And then come to find out they checked his triglycerides and his triglycerides were like 300 and something, but it's because he would, he just was very fit. And then he would go home and binge every night and he was just eating to such excess, but he never gained weight. But, um, they gave a couple of statistics that said 1 million Americans will die from diet related illnesses this year. If you take out like people that are older, it is the number one cause of heart issues like death is diet related heart issues. And then also at this point, 44% of Americans are considered obese, like not even overweight, just obese. Um, so that was pretty wild to think about. One of the things that they, Oh, go ahead. Oh no. I was just going to say, it just makes me think. So I'm aware of these numbers just because I use them in carnivore cure and other books. But it it just reminds me of specifically when I messaged Carnivore Aurelius when he posted how keto diets will make you unwell. And then literally the next post after he was stating these n- numbers or something like that, that most of America is obese. And right. so I just remember leaving him a comment saying, that's exactly why your post prior about keto is not ideal. Because I understand that when you're super fit, and you're in the wellness space because you're just trying to maximize your longevity, maybe you can tolerate certain carbs. But most of the people otherwise that are looking at wellness content is because they've been diagnosed with something, they're overweight, they're unhealthy, and they're just trying to find tips of how can I eat better. And when they get all this misinformation from the healthy gurus that almost no one is like them, this is where I think the lack of empathy is in the wellness space. But the problem is, is that the way that the society wants to address it is through medications, through surgeries. There's this new weight loss drug, which I think at some point we're going to do a whole episode on. Um, And so that's this new celebrity weight loss drug, they're calling it. Um, And surgery. There's that article that came out recently saying the way to tackle obesity in kids was with surgery. Um, And that was one of the things Dr. Tro talked about is that uh, at five years, nearly half of the weight is regained. If you have some sort of bariatric surgery, then at the five-year mark, you've gained half of your weight back is the average, which means obviously some people have gained more than that uh, and, and some less, but basically that's, that was insane to me to think about is that people are having this surgery to hopefully help them lose weight. And it's still a tool that a lot of doctors use. And it's, I'm not saying it's always the wrong tool, but it's a tool um, that can be used, but alcohol this is, let me just list some things that he mentioned about people who have bariatric surgeries. That's scary. And I don't think it's mentioned for people when they go in looking for that as an option. So at five years, half of the weight is regained. Alcohol use disorder is a side effect of bariatric surgery. Wow. People are still looking for a high of some kind and they can't get it from food. And a lot of people turn to alcohol. There is an increased risk of suicide with bariatric patients. Wow which also was pretty crazy. And then Tro went on to say, and this was really like emotional for me to hear. He was like, people are suffering and the weight is a symptom, right? We don't have a weight problem. We have a suffering problem and the weight is a symptom of what is going on. And this is why I think you and I are so passionate about saying, stop treating the symptoms and focus on the root problem. And we mean that with your health, but when it comes to weight, this is something I had to learn. I spent a lot of years addressing the symptom of my overweightness and the symptom of my obesity. And I lost weight, but because I had never addressed the root cause of the fact that I was suffering or why I was eating or what was going on at the root of me, 
I was never able to keep the weight off until then, even with carnivore, I used carnivore to lose all that weight and address the symptom of my obesity. And I still struggled once I had hit that bottom and gain weight and relost it. And now I've had to spend the last couple of years focusing on the root and the symptom of like, how do I find peace and balance in my life and not have food be the medicine that I'm using to heal myself. And this is a hard work that I think people just need to get there because, I mean, when you first started carnivore, you didn't realize that that was something that you needed to do, right? You just thought you were going to use this tool to lose weight. I thought I was broken and just couldn't, I, I failed at every diet. I thought I was the the broken factor, right? And I thought that it was just my fault and that I just sucked at maintenance. From a pure video viewership thing, whenever I share about food addiction or healing from trauma or these things that are tools that maybe if a diet's not sticking that you may also want to consider, they never do well. And even though I know that, I still share it because for me, that was a huge part of my healing. It sounds like it's a huge part of your healing. And But people just would rather say, just give me the macro, just give me the stick of butter, right? Or just tell me to eat PSMF how. But it's oftentimes, like you said, it really is a symptom. And so I always tell my nutritional therapist team, we are almost therapists and we're trying to figure out what is really driving you to be unwell or what is driving you to be um, struggling with food addiction or obesity and how do we support that? And oftentimes it's just figuring out what trauma did they have in the past? I mean, I, I said this before, but some people, they will unknowingly stay obese because let's say they've been raped in their past or they've had some trauma with somebody doing stuff to them when they didn't want it to happen. And so they keep themselves overweight, hoping that they will not be attracted to anybody. And so that that will never happen again. And never once do they think about that's why they're doing it. And so I fully believe that weight gain and why we're turning to food is absolutely either a symptom, it's a coping mechanism. I mean, I definitely use food for all my emotions. And until we recognize that, it's not that we don't know the right macro. It's not that we don't know the right food to eat sometimes. And oftentimes, it's much deeper than that. Yeah. And that's interesting. I think you're so right. If you label something food addiction anywhere, it doesn't get views and it doesn't because people either are in denial about it or they don't think that it applies to them, or they just have no interest in it, right? And that's that's the main thing. But those of us that, ha- it's like this, it's a, red, it's a red pill in a sense, or it's yeah. this light bulb moment that happens when you realize I have a food addiction. It's almost very freeing to realize that because then you're able to start addressing it. Yes. And we all run around screaming it from the rooftops. That's why people are so eager to share about it, but it's not something that the masses have really come to term with. And they're still self-deprecating and thinking like, no, no, it's not the diet. It's not, I just suck at moderation. I can't count calories. I don't go to the gym enough. I failed. I failed. And I mean, going back, I just am such a fan of Tro and the way he words things. So this is why he's talked several times this weekend, which is why I'm stuck on sharing all his stuff. But he, first of all, you should look up a lot of his information around the obesity trap in general, but he talked about, it's not about willpower. And this is so true for me. People always say like, you must have so much willpower. I have no willpower. I have none. I understand my limits. That's the thing. And so he's he mentioned um, build defenses, not willpower. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really powerful. He talked about how there are five problems, five problem areas in your life, right? Problem foods, problem places, problem peoples, 
problem situations and problem times. And really like 90% of what we eat is in like five to 10 locations. So you, and he said, and maybe like 50 items. So sometimes it thinks like, this is so overwhelming. All I get to eat is meat and all I get to have is this. And I can't do this ever for the rest of my life. And we just get so overwhelmed. But in reality, like audit your life. What are your five, what are your problem foods? What are your problem places? Where do you slip up? Is it at work? Is it at home? Is it at your mom's house? Is it when you go out with your friends? Like what are those, is it at specific restaurants? It's once you've identified what are those problem areas, your problem times, it's 10 o'clock at night when I'm watching TV, that's my problem time. I end up snacking and like, whatever, like identify those times. And then once you've identified what those problem areas are, then you can start building defenses to avoid them, to prevent them, to be proactive and overcome them. And then it takes all of this pressure off of like, I have to white knuckle this. I have to, you know, just have a strong enough willpower because I'm telling you, I am not strong enough to say no a thousand times a day, right? It only takes one time of not saying no to kind of throw somebody off of a spiral. And it's really hard to do that. So if you can identify those five things, those five problem areas, then you really can focus on overcoming them. Yeah. And I think that's so true. Um, just even with the holidays, when a lot of people say I struggle a lot with the holidays, there's probably certain places we've always gone and eaten certain foods. And then we meet maybe certain problem people where we only run into them once every few months and uh, right. they might say triggering things. And a lot of that probably taps into all five of those things that you just mentioned, which then just make holidays that much harder. And I agree with you. For me, a big thing that I needed to realize was at night, I always combined watching and just unwinding with TV with the family and then snacking. And that was such a hard thing to let go of. And so I started pairing. So first I just stopped watching TV in total with, and with the yeah. family. So they would watch it and I just wouldn't. And then over time, as I got better, I was able to go down there and then I just made my hands busier with something else. So I brought my computer down and I would be checking emails. And eventually as I got even stronger, I tried, well, maybe I could try some beef jerky. How does that work? Will that lead to a binge? And it didn't for most times. And I think once we become aware, like you said, we can really start healing. It's just the difficult thing is so many people, again, it's just putting in that hard work and then doing it consistently is really the answer. But it's just sometimes easier to say it's because you're not doing X. And once I figure out X, then everything will be fixed. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sivas did a talk there as well about and it was, I mean, we, you and I are both such a fan of his work on food addiction and carb right. addiction, right? I don't necessarily agree with all his eating um, advice sometimes, but just, okay, this is great. I take what I need from people and I'm able to to pull stuff out. But he gave a really powerful talk on um, what he struggles with. And he talked about having an adequacy problem. And I relate to that so much that like we turn to food and we turn to external for, uh, sources in order to uh, address the fact that I feel inadequate or I have an, an, an adequacy problem. We don't feel like we're good enough. We don't deserve something. Right. Um, and he said, it's impossible to get fat from something that doesn't give you an endorphin high. And I think that's where like, it doesn't matter if it's butter or carbs or sugar or bacon or whatever. If it's not giving you an endorphin high, it's impossible to overconsume it in some way. And that's why I think even on keto and carnivore, there are still certain foods that trigger people. And it's simply, it's why I can't do these like butter bites and stuff because it's a replacement for a dessert and it's too much of an endorphin high for me oh, right. where I just would overconsume that. Um, 
He talked about obesity is a substance abuse problem, not a calorie problem. Um, and I, the biggest part, and I've had to do with this as well. His, he then kind of went on to talk. These are just like all my takeaways that I was writing down furiously. No, it's good. It's good. But he's like, we are fat people. I was a fat person. My identity was a fat person and it defined who I was completely. And it wasn't until I started looking at myself differently and redefining who I was at the core that I was able to start to learn and move move on, right? So he said a large part of addiction recovery is redefining who we are and finding new ways to have a serotonin spike, which put together, how many times have I said on here, I had to find a hobby. I didn't know how to deal with my daily life without turning to food for that serotonin spike and that endorphin high for me. And so it really takes... Um, this emotion, uh, effort-based emotional management system he talked about. You have to find something that you love, that gives you peace, that gives you joy, whether it's creative arts or meditation or spirituality, physical activity, right? This is why people also dive into like exercise and stuff. Um, maybe it's like having good sleep and good connections with people and friends. You and I do this podcast as a, a lot. I think this podcast for us is part of our effort-based emotional management system because it's something that is, it's not an instant gratification thing. Sure. Food is this instant gratification high that it gives us and we need something that's effort-based. You put effort into this uh, in the same way that you like literally just getting a hobby or something that takes effort that still brings you joy and gratification rather than relying on the instant gratification um, from food. And I, that was like, I feel like I've lived that the last couple of years as I figured out who I was, but I wasn't able to like put into words how I actually did that until he really defined that for me. No, I think that's really powerful. I I really feel that we are our own worst enemy. When I was really sick with my eating disorder, I couldn't even get out of bed sometimes. Like my goal for the day was just to check the mail and I couldn't even do that sometimes or wake up a few hours before Caleb would get out of school and I still couldn't do that. And now I keep challenging myself to see what else can I do in a day or what else can I do in a quarter. And I think once we see some level of progression and maybe in that effort based as he was mentioning, you will realize, wow, I didn't binge for a week. I didn't eat X for just a day and then a week and then see how much you do in a month. And it always goes back to that saying, you know, we, we put so much effort and emphasis on what we think we could do in a day, but we put so such minimal thoughts and what we can do and achieve in a year. And if we were to just do super small steps, and that's why Atomic Habits, that book is so popular. But if we were to just progress, if you were to learn one word from a different language every single day, while one word seems so minuscule in a year, that's 365 words. And that's the power of anything we think about. But every day, it just... We, we have a hard time really pushing ourselves to do more. And I heard another statistic recently that anything you can think of in this world that you want to do, whether it's learning an instrument, uh, learning a new language, most things take about 20 hours of investment to actually learn something to a very basic level. And so I thought, okay, and I thought of a lot of different scenarios that made a lot of sense. Most people take years, if not de- decades, if not ever, to even just get right. that first hour started. We put so much focus a lot of times on 
perfection and speed of weight loss. Somebody messaged me the other day and she was like, I've been doing this for uh, two weeks and I've only lost four pounds. I'm so frustrated. I'm like, do you, you lost two pounds a week, two pounds a week. Do you, I was like, do you realize if you lost two pounds a week for a year, you'd lose a hundred pounds, right? Like people look at me and say, how did you lose a hundred pounds in a year? There's no way two pounds a week gives you a hundred pound weight loss in a year. And that's even with a couple of weeks that don't count, right? Like a couple of setback weeks, but um, something else I've said kind of along these lines was he was like, praise the effort, not the outcome. Mm-hmm. Like you are working hard. You, like you just mentioned, you haven't binged in a week. Stop obsessing about the fact that the scale hasn't moved, but praise the effort that you've taken that I haven't had those trigger foods in this amount of time. And like, you know, I've, I made it through today and finding ways to praise the effort that you're putting into it and then be patient and the outcome will get there. And I think we, with food and weight loss, we get in such a hurry. And we also just put so much emphasis on perfection and like, oh, I had one thing I wasn't supposed to do on one day for one afternoon. The whole thing has gone out the window right. and I'm completely off the rails. And it's hard to break that mentality, but it really can, it doesn't have to be a setback unless you actually do get off the rails. Right. And you just have to think if you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you've been dieting your whole life, obviously these quick gimmicks of trying to change something really quickly is not working. And then you're 30 years out in doing the same thing. So what if you just take a year and you say, I am just going to focus on the day and then do the same thing over and over. And then a year out, even if it wasn't perfect, as long as I won most of my days, there's a hundred pound weight loss. There's a new X thing I wanted to do. There's a new thing I committed to. And the day-to-day seems super boring and just consistent, but that is how anything is built. Um, I listen to so much content on these big entrepreneurs of how they grew these big companies and all of them have the same consistent message. You just do the same thing over and over. And there's no magic secret. They don't just snap their fingers and all of a sudden these empires were built. They, they just work hard and they do the same thing over and over. Yeah. It's like, we have to quit looking for these quick magic results pills. or comparing ourselves. Yeah. Magic pills or comparing ourselves to other people. Like don't even like, I'm not saying I, I share my story hopefully, but not to get people to compare themselves. Like it takes people different amounts of time um, on how we do things. And I've said this, I don't know how many times on here, right? I lost all that weight very fast. Well, maybe it wasn't the best way for me to do it. Cause guess what? I gained a lot of it back in 2020. And then it took me from t- end of 2020 when I finally got my self together <laughs> um, until, you know, it took me like another year and a half to lose a third of, cause I had gained like almost half my weight back. Right. Or like oh, not quite half, but I gained a lot of weight back, but it took me then two and a half years. And I finally still, guess what? Today, even after having skin removal surgery, I'm not as thin as I was at the end of 2019. Now I'm not trying to get back that thin again, but I have been slowly tick, 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 ticking down, but I have been the most stable and consistent right. that I have ever been in my entire life. And sometimes doing things fast is not the recipe for being able to maintain it long-term. And that's, I wish it's hard because it's hard to stay consistent if you're not seeing results because results are very motivating, which is why you have to change your worth in that. You have to praise the effort and not the outcome. It's like, think about how proud of you are for how you handled your week before you step on the scale and don't let this number on the scale of whether you lost two pounds or not dictate that. Now I still weigh, I will never not weigh myself. I think it's a valuable tool 
as long as it's not something that I'm obsessing over, that I'm putting my worth in, as long as it's not something that's causing me to drastically change what I'm doing, to me, it's a tool of, yeah, okay, maybe you've been a little snacky lately and uh, it's time to like, you know, get back to eating two meals a day and you probably haven't been, you know, like whatever, eating too much or eating too little, those types of things. Um, but I think sometimes we just get in such a hurry. I, I think it really depends on if the tool makes sense for you. So for me, I don't weigh myself at all because sure. I know that if I weigh myself, it'll start triggering, oh, maybe I need to cut down on my calories and I don't even yeah. check my calories. So I don't even know how I would start doing that. But I, I think everyone needs to figure out, is this tool beneficial? And so I learned eventually, and I used to be super obsessive with the weigh scale and I would weigh myself before a binge, then post binge, and then post after that, and just really, really on the weigh scale all the time. And I had to learn that this is a tool that is not a beneficial one for me. Based on whatever the scale said, my self-worth was in that completely. And I had to let go of that. And it was so difficult to do that. But once I did that, I was able to just focus on, did I eat a all meat diet today? And did I not binge? And if that alone was a yes and a yes, then I had a successful day. Yeah. And I, I think we just need to think about, is this tool I'm using, whether it's a fitness tracker, a weigh scale, um, measuring my waist every day, what, whatever the thing is, if that tool brings you more negativity and mindset uh, frustration and you feel more defeated, then that tool is not working for you and it's time to cut it out. Yeah. Another one of the speakers in Boca was Dr. David Unwin, who I had never heard of before. And I love him and his wife, both Dr. Jen Unwin were there and spoke a lot. And he just was, he just worked with people in the UK and was so powerful at the healing that he's providing to his community. Um, and he talked a lot about habits versus willpower, which is really similar okay. to what we're digging into today. And he just said, it kind of was saying, it makes me crazy when people are saying they're going to do this with willpower, right? Habits are enduring. Right. And he, I'm sure it's coming from the Atomic Habits book, but it's like, once you develop one tiny, tiny habit, it's like, do three squats when you first get up in the morning or don't eat, like develop one tiny habit. Then guess what? First of all, you then are going to feel good about yourself and you feel empowered and it's going to, it's going to empower you to do another habit and another habit. Right. And then you can create more. And they, like you mentioned, they build on each other. Um, and I think the other thing too, he really talked about was the power of hope. And I loved this talk about how he was like, hopeful people do stuff, depressed yeah. people don't. And like, we want to be able to find hope in what we're doing and think of the hope of change and the hope of healing uh, is such a powerful tool. And I think it's sometimes we just get so down with where things are now. We really have to find a way to redefine that and stop focusing on what's going to happen when I'm skinny or when I've healed or when I've done these things and just try to find the hope to get there because that hope alone is going to give you the motivation to do something about it. Yeah, we all live in the same world and the way that we view the world and the way that we our mindset is flowing is how our lives will appear to us. So if we wake up, we watch the news or we're re reading or consuming a lot of negative content and that is the thought and the mood that we start the day with, well any relational um, transaction or anything that happens throughout the right. day, we're going to see it in a negative light. Whereas if we are more hopeful and we think of more positive things or listen to more inspirational messages or meditation or something, 
then our mindset, even if something negative happens to us, we will react differently. And that's where I always say it's so important to protect your heart and your ears and your eyes. And if something is not benefiting you, you have to cut it out. And it's why a big part of me, I only get the news from Laura's Beth because I don't want the negativity <laughs> of stuff to weigh me down. And then I think, well, what's the point of sharing about ribeye if we don't even have our freedom in the near future, right? So it's where you have to find that balance that makes sense for you. But this also circles back to what you were talking about in the beginning of curating your content, curating your friends, your community, like really right. protecting yourself and, you know, and, and building this positive space around you. And whether it's the content you're consuming, what you're listening to, the news, like we have to find this way to get ourselves out of this negative cycle. And that might be people or doom scrolling or whatever it is. Right. And we have to be able to find that hope. Um, because I think the hope is the first step. Finding the hope is the first step to healing and getting healthier and losing weight and just finding happiness. And I think without that hope, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. And I, I was depressed for a long adult period of my life. And I, I understand how hard it is to have hope when you're really depressed. And I urge people, all I did was listen to inspirational content. So listen to the Tony Robbins, stop listening even to diet stuff, no negativity, don't watch the news, don't watch anything from just the news in general is, you know, all about clicks. So it's going to be a lot of the fear mongering and negativity listen to stuff that's about inspiration and life changes and stuff that brings you hope that your life can turn around because it is in these moments that over time, you just need a few days in your win that you are doing things that are supporting you. And then just after a week, your life can feel so much better because you will have a lot yeah. more hope inside you. Absolutely. On future episodes, I know we'll get into some of the other science that they talked about um, in Boca, and we won't really like go through that as much, but I know like Nina Teichholz was there and talked about um, cholesterol and Ben Bickman. I loved hearing him uh, talk about uh, metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, and there was just a lot of other good scientific talks that we can break down uh, over the next few weeks, but I felt like I was proud of them for addressing this content in a, in a way that hopefully is going to help give people resources and tools, and I mean- we have to, we know that we're doing this on our own at this point, And hopefully we have more doctors in the future who are ready to help people um, fight this. Yeah. I love that they brought up food addiction because it's not just this woo woo thing that most people aren't suffering from. I think if anything, we in our society glorify food, right? Everything in moderation. If you feel sad, let's go get some ice cream. Uh, let's celebrate a dentist win by eating more sugar. I'm very grateful that they brought it up. And it's just near and dear to my heart because I struggled with that on my own. Um, I'd love to in the future, in a future podcast, just talk about a lot of the stuff that Dr. Bickman brought up, how it's different oh, yeah. than some of the other stuff brought up in the carnivore community. I think it's very relevant to our community and I'd love to chat more about it. Yeah, we'll probably try to tackle like one topic a week on those. Just yeah. like his, he was doing the A1C and the higher glucose on um, carnivore, and and I think we actually mentioned it a little bit last week. But it's all good. It's good things. So anyway, I'm excited. Um, thanks for supporting us, guys. Hope you have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah, and thank you so much for um, updating us. I I wish I went, but um, it sounds like there's a yeah. lot of good information from it. Cool. <laughs> hey, come to KetoCon, and we'll we'll all see you there. <laughs> Okay, we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. <laughs>